Hello, happy Monday. Welcome back to the Money O2 podcast. I'm really excited for today's episode. And I think there's a lot of really interesting value and perspective from today's guest. And so we're going to be talking about money and mental health, which we've talked about the widespread prevalence of both money and math anxiety, which I have personally experienced many, many times in our work at Community. And I've also personally experienced as an individual in my early 20s. And so we've never actually formally unpacked how financial stress and challenges with money really show up in someone's mental health. And so I'm really excited to actually bring in an expert on this topic who is an actual financial therapist to today's show. Yes, she's a financial therapist, which by the way, I did not even know this existed. It's a relatively new and emerging field. And my gosh, I could have used this in the past for sure. I really think it's hard to ignore the intersection of money and mental health. And so I'm really excited to explore that today. So today we are joined by Lindsay Bryan Podvin, and she is a biracial financial therapist, speaker, and author of the book, The Financial Anxiety Solution, which by the way, we've been talking about financial anxiety and money anxiety. And so when I saw this book, I was like, oh my God, I need to have her on. And she shares a little bit about what it actually means to be a financial therapist. And she also shares about her own financial and mental health struggles and really what brought her to this field. And so she talks about in her work as a social worker, which she had earned a graduate degree for, she started making less money when she completed her training than she was making as a server and some of the challenges that evolved and ensued in her own mental health. And so as a practicing licensed marriage social worker since 2012, she uses a shame-free approach to help people get their minds and money in balance. She holds a degree in sociology and a master's in social work with certificates in financial social work and financial therapy. I can't wait for you to listen to this episode. I'm really curious to hear what you think, and I hope you enjoy. Even with my master's degree and having a level of financial privilege that I did not graduate grad school with any student loan debt, I was still struggling financially. The field of financial therapy is relatively new as there is a bi-directional relationship, two-way relationship between depression and money stress. One of the biggest things about doing this work is how powerful it can be simply to validate a person's experience. Saying things like, you're not alone, also dials down shame. Lindsay. Welcome. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well, Erin. I live in the Midwest. I live in Michigan and the snow is finally starting to melt and the sun is out. So I'm feeling really good today. A good day. A good day to have yes. a great conversation yes. about what you do, which is I want to dive right into it. You mm-hmm. are a financial therapist and yes. I saw this. I don't even know how I found you. And I was like, I need to talk to you because Uh, lots of things we'll get into and our listeners will know. But before we do that, I just want to kind of unpack a what is a financial therapist and b you're a therapist by training. So what really led you to specializing in the area of financial therapy? Sure. So I'll answer the first question, which is what is a financial therapist? For me, my definition of a financial therapist is somebody who is already a trained therapist. So a licensed marriage and family therapist, licensed clinical counselor, licensed clinical social worker, psychologist, et cetera. 
and they have specialized training in financial psychology, social work, or the trauma of money. So to me, they kind of exist in this Venn diagram of being a therapist who also has specialized training in the psychology of money. And then how I got here, Erin, I did not plan on this. <laughs> um, I knew I wanted to go into the mental health care field. And prior to moving into financial therapy, I specialized in anxiety and in depression. And even with my master's degree and having a level of financial privilege that I did not graduate grad school with any student loan debt, I was still struggling financially to make ends meet. And the traditional personal finance narrative was incredibly shame based. It sounded like you're struggling financially because you didn't work hard enough. You didn't learn how to clip coupons. You're being lazy. You're being irresponsible. And meanwhile, I was looking at my life and I'm like, uh, I'm shopping at Aldi and Trader Joe's. I barely drive my car. I am not going out for like drinks or dinner or anything like that. Like I am living as frugally and modestly as possible and yet still really struggling. And the way that that impacted not only my relationship with money, but struggling financially impacted me on a mental and physical level. I share pretty openly that I've struggled with anxiety, depression, and an eating disorder. And those things had been really well managed. And then when I got in this first social work job where I was earning less money than I was as a server, my mental health deteriorated pretty quickly. My anxiety and depression symptoms flared up. It impacted my ability to sleep. I developed insomnia for the first time in my life. And for anyone who struggled with sleep, you know that when you don't sleep well, your body doesn't like it. And so I was getting colds, I was getting flus, I had headaches all the time. I just in general was not feeling well. And so as much as I tried to learn the right things, I just felt like I couldn't move the needle. So fast forward many years later, for me, what felt best was to find a job that compensated me a bit better. For other people, there are other ways to increase your income. If you're self-employed, that might mean looking at your service rates and making sure you're charging appropriately. It might look like working different hours. There are many different ways that you can go about finding a, a healthy way to increase your income. But fast forward, I was finding that in my therapy practice, helping people with depression and anxiety, money stuff was coming up all the time. And with my own lived experience, it just felt like a missed opportunity to not help people who were in my care for, for depression and anxiety to not be able to talk to them about money. And so that's when I went to get training in financial therapy and in financial social work and to kind of hang my shingle as a financial therapist. There's a lot there. And I think First of all, what an issue that you made less money after a graduate degree. That's another conversation, you know, with all the training that you're just trying to help people. But I think so many people get into that phase. And so would you really boil down the flare up of your anxiety and your depression and that coming up? Was it really rooted in the financial element in your case? Yeah, it, that that's how it feels to me. Are there other things that were probably complicating my relationship with mental health? Absolutely. And the reason I feel like I can easily pinpoint it to money was that as soon as I got my first paycheck at a job that compensated me better, my mental health symptoms started to decrease and my insomnia started to resolve. Um, 
I, as a social worker, we're pretty attuned to work in stressful situation. We, de we develop a lot of different coping skills to help protect us mentally and emotionally from some of the stressors that can come up in a work environment like that. So for me, it felt pretty black and white. Yeah. Let's dive into your own background because you mentioned that you grew up privileged and I love to hear from your definition. How do you, how does one define privilege? Yeah, I think this has become a loaded term in years recently. And so I, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to just level set. First and foremost, each of us has different areas where we hold areas of privilege. Privilege is just having a advantage because of your belonging in a specific social group. So when I say I come from financial privilege, I am saying I was a member of a family that was upper middle class. My father was a physician, my mother was a nurse. We were doing fine financially. And as I shared, their contribution to my education meant that I graduated without student loan debt. And where I think people get frustrated with the term privilege is they think that having privilege means that they somehow don't experience pain or heartache or loss. And that is not the case at all. Having privilege does not mean you can't experience pain or frustration or heartache in your life. It simply means that the, the pain or heartache or frustration isn't specifically a result of your membership in that specific community. So for example, I have privilege because I come from financial privilege and I also have areas where I don't have privilege. You and I are here talking as women and we know in this country, men have some privilege over women. And it's not to say, you know, men are bad or they're wrong or anything. It's just to say they have an upper hand in that one area. And there are many other areas where they may not hold privilege. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to share a little bit more about that. And thank you for that very articulate definition too. And I think that's really helpful for people to think about for those that do come from privilege and as they're assessing their own mental health and their own financial realities, whether it be what they want or not. And for those that don't, because, and I appreciate you also saying the fact that your parents contributed to your education did give you a leg up um, to be able to graduate debt-free and you still also had your own struggles. Exactly. Exactly. I love it. I want you to also talk a little bit about your money story. So you, you grew up with a background with, you know, a fairly academic family, I would say, or, you know, traditional profession, you go into kind of an academic career, then you graduate, you're met with surprise on, you know, your earnings, but tell me a little bit more about your money story kind of before that. And then maybe now. Yeah. Oh gosh. Good question, Erin. So my money story, yes, as I shared, I came from financial privilege and also my grandparents did not have the same level of financial privilege as I did. So on my mother's side, um, my grandparents grew up with a lot of financial struggles. The, the message they learned about money was if you get an education, then you will be safe financially. So that was the money story that they then passed down to my mother and then she then passed down to me. So for me growing up, a lot of the messaging that I got around money was that it's important to save, it's important to work for an income, and it's important to get an education. So a lot of those messages were kind of intertwined with money. I can remember my mom being very transparent about um, 
people's lifestyles not necessarily matching their income. So for example, when I was like a middle schooler or a high school and I'd be complaining like, ah, oh, you don't let me shop at XYZ shop. She would say, Lindsay. And I would you know, point to my friends and be like, they get to buy this, they get to buy this, they get to buy this. And she would really lovingly just say, honey, they're, they're using credit cards. Like there's no way that they can afford the amount of shopping sprees that they do without putting it on some sort of loan. And that was super eye-opening for me to understand that just because somebody looks like they are doing well financially does not mean we know what's going on behind the scenes. So I had a lot of those money messages growing up. Um, and then as I got into the field of social work, in the field of social work, and, and like you said, this is a whole other aside, there is a pretty strong message that you didn't choose this field because money is important to you. You chose social work because you're a carer, you're a helper, you're a giver, um, don't expect to make a lot of money in your career. So there were a lot of different messages. Um, right now, my relationship with money is very much that I view money as a tool. I view it as something that's neutral um, in that I don't think money is a good thing. I don't think money is a bad thing. I also think that money provides us a lot of access to things like security and safety. And so that's the way that I view money right now. I also think that you're allowed to use money for fun. I think there's a lot of stigma around spending money on things that bring you joy in the personal finance space. So yeah, those are a few different kind of uh, themes that I've noticed in my relationship with money growing up. And when you made that transition and, you know, when you were kind of in that low point, it was primarily for you to make a change in your financial reality. It was boiled down to increasing your earnings. That was kind of how you, how you were able to change that. And after you increased your earnings, was there other work that you did, you know, using your background on your own experience? How did you kind of heal that and get to the point that you're at today? Oh, such a, such good, juicy questions, Erin. Um, yes. So dialing down my expenses was the first way that I tried to heal my relationship with money. And really quickly, I learned you cannot cut your expenses to feeling safe about money, or at least that was the message that I learned. Um, so for me, it was kind of this combination of earn more, spend less, and that will feel better. I did a lot of different things. I engaged in traditional therapy. I read a lot of books. I listened to a bunch of different podcasts. Um, and over time, the relationship kind of shifted to to where it is now. And that's why I always encourage people like, you know, you can listen to Aaron and I, and there are also other people out there that you can get information and ideas from. Give yourself full permission to turn off or not read books that feel really bad or really gross to you. We are in a wealth of information right now. And so you are bound to be able to find somebody who speaks about money in a way that feels good for you. Um, and you're also allowed to change your mind about money. I think that's so true. There's so many free resources and people may connect to us and they may not. And there's thousands of resources and free resources that you can get access to. And I think that's why I bring people like you on. And that's why we talk about this because when I had my own, and I had a very similar situation to you where it was like, why can't I figure this out? Why am I always stressed? And it really was totally fueling my anxiety. And so the way that I helped myself kind of transform that was listening to people's stories and being like, oh, A, they have it worse than me or B, we're similar and change is possible. And it is possible. And that's the point of listening to stories like this. And so I'm also really curious about your patient population that come to you for financial anxiety. 
And is there a specific socioeconomic background that you work with? So I would say most of my clients are in the middle to upper middle income earners. Most of my clients are not financially at the lower end of things where they're struggling to make ends meet. But I would say most of them are, are living a, a pretty moderate lifestyle and some of them are earning more than enough money. For me, a lot of my clients struggle with financial anxiety, which is feeling nervous, worried, anxious, on edge in terms of their relationship with money. For a good chunk of my clients, um, they might be some of the first people in their family to be earning more money, or they might be some of the first people in their family to take proactive action on opening up a retirement account or, or maybe the first homeowners in their family. So a lot of my clients tend to be the first, and so they don't necessarily have a model or a person in their family that they can kind of ask like, hey, how did you navigate the home buying process? Or hey, what do you know about retirement? So there's that piece. The other piece that I see a lot of them struggle with is they're perfectionists in a lot of ways. They want to do money the right way. And so they tend to consume a lot of content around money, but they almost consume so much to the point where they then are unable to make decisions on their own. They're like, I've read 45 books about money or listened to hundreds of different podcasts about money. What do I do now? <laughs> you know, they struggle because they don't want to make a mistake. So I would say those are kind of the two big areas in terms of age. I'm a millennial, so most of my clients tend to be millennials. Youngest client, 18, oldest one in their 80s, right? So it, it definitely ranges, but the bulk of them are, are in that millennial age range. Is there any other specific themes that you see come up a lot where it's like, this always happens around this specific area? Yeah, it's a good question. It's often, whether it is a specific thing, there are patterns that come up. Um, so, oh, you know, I'm really good at managing money, but when it comes to treating my friends, that's when all of my self-control goes out the window and it just feels so special for me to buy things for them or to buy a round of drinks or whatever it may be, right? Some of these themes, or I'm really good at negotiating for myself professionally, but when it comes to talking to my partner about money, I completely clam up and I just don't know what to do. So there are definitely patterns, but there isn't one specific type of pattern that brings a person into my office. Let's just say as a hypothetical example, I come to you and I am feeling anxiety because I read in your book, which I'm here, <laughs> one of the models is um, by age 30, you're supposed to have one year salary in retirement account or saved. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, ooh, I'm really far away from that. Yep. How, what would, and I'm really anxious about it or I'm stressed or I'm feeling like I'm doing something wrong and it's, it's really, you know, kind of stressing me out and causing me to really reflect on what I've done and what I didn't do. Mm -hmm. How would you approach that conversation? Yeah, so what I would typically say in a situation like that is first, those are guidelines. They're rules of thumb. They aren't hard and fast. If you're not here by this age, then you're doomed forever. They are more or less these guideposts to help you kind of move toward a healthier relationship with money. So first and foremost, I would say if that number doesn't work for you, if it freaks you out, then you can kind of like tuck it off to the side and work on what matters most to you. So in general, there are three kind of pillars of personal finance that we often talk about. One is the here and now, how much money is coming in, how much money is going out. A lot of people call that a budget. I prefer to call it a spending plan. So maybe with you, Aaron, in this situation, thinking about retirement is stressful, but can we focus on the income and the expenses? 
The next kind of pillar of personal finance is those short and medium term goals, saving up for a new car, a vacation, um, kind of those short term things that are going to happen in the next one to five years. And then that last pillar is what's going to happen for you in the future. How can you prepare financially for your future self? That looks like retirement, having a will and trust in place, making sure if you have a home or children or a partner that you have life insurance. So there are a lot of things that kind of happen in that category. But if you're feeling like, wow, thinking about that third category of like my future is really stressful, then I'd say let's let's kind of figure out what other areas we can work on and we can build on. Because what happens when we start to take action in any one of those pillars is that it helps to build a positive reward loop where you go, oh, I was scared of doing a spending plan or doing a budget, but now I've been doing it for a month. And even though it feels a little bit awkward, I'm really proud of myself for doing it. And that completion of that task tells your brain, oh, you are capable of doing money related tasks, thus making it easier for you to take a next step on saving up money for a down payment. And then once you kind of do that, it gives you that confidence to go, okay, I was really nervous about looking at retirement three months ago, but now I feel like I have the confidence and the calmness to be able to look at it in a more neutral way and to be able to approach it with fresh eyes. So it sounds like you just really guide people to more of the micro immediate mm-hmm. type steps that you can control now. And that's yes. kind of the stepping point before they continue to move on. It makes total yeah. sense. Amazing. Also, do people recognize when they come see you that financial anxiety is their specific problem when they come to see you? Or is it like, Hey, they come to you because they know something's going on. And then together you kind of unpack and figure out why they're there. It's a little bit of both because my website, my brand is so consistent in talking about financial anxiety. A lot of my clients who end up working with me are already pretty familiar with that. And they're like, Hey, I read your book. This is me. I need your help. Or -hmm. I listened to a podcast episode about it. That sounds like me. I need to talk about that. Whereas others will identify things that they do. A lot of times clients come to me telling me things they don't want. I don't want to be stressed out about money. I don't want to feel awkward when I talk to my partner about money. I don't want to wake up in the middle of the night with anxiety. So what I try to invite them to do, Erin, is what do you want? Okay, I heard you don't want to be stressed. I heard you don't want to be anxious. I heard you don't want to not be able to talk to your partner about money. But what do you want? And that kind of can open their eyes to wow, I never really considered that I could have a relationship with money that isn't rooted in one of those negative emotions. Super helpful. All right. So the book I just referenced, you have a book called The Financial Anxiety Solution, which uh, this is something you're the first other person that I've really heard boil it down to financial anxiety, because I think, as I told you, when we when we chatted, this is something we always speak about. Mm -hmm. in our work with business owners, leaders, students, and professionals. And we ask that simple question. Do you have money or math anxiety? Meaning, do you feel a sense of fear, angst, or dread when talking about money or math? And we find at least the last time it's kind of a dynamic survey, over 68% of the respondents, at least in our population say yes. Right. And so I love that you have this specific workbook created with, from a therapist background, right? Because So I just want to unpack a little bit the intersection you see specifically between financial anxiety and mental health. Yeah. Ooh, such a good question. So 
I wrote the financial anxiety solution because as I shared with you before I moved into financial therapy, I specialized in anxiety and depression. And so as you can imagine, a lot of my clients with anxiety or depression were bringing up money related things. And I learned that layering on money, just like we would layer on other stressors, um, food, body image, self-esteem, confidence, things like that, um, we could make some good positive momentum. Um, as you shared, depending on the study you look at and depending on the year, that 68% of people self-identifying as having anxiety around money is spot on. Depending on who you're looking at, we're talking anywhere from 70 to 80% of adults mm -hmm. in the US are saying, yes, I experience financial anxiety. Um, so in terms of what do we know about how many people have financial, or I'm sorry, who have an anxiety disorder, such as generalized anxiety disorder or social anxiety or specific phobia, plus a fear of money, we don't really know. And the reason we don't really know is that the field of financial therapy is relatively new. It's just over 12 years old, and so the data is coming out. So what we do know is there is a bi-directional relationship, that's just a fancy way of saying a two-way relationship, between depression and money stress. And so we can also imagine that there is likely a two-way relationship between anxiety and money stress. And that's because anxiety kind of works in this negative feedback loop. I worry that I'm not good at money, therefore I avoid opening my bills. And because I didn't open my bills, I feel bad and guilty and dumb. And then that cycle continues. So, um, and what we know about money is that sometimes the stakes can be higher than they would for say something like social anxiety to so to give a totally different example if a person struggles with social anxiety there they might go oh my gosh what if i go to a party and somebody thinks i'm weird and then i never get invited to a party again the stakes for that person are likely going to be much lower than a person whose financial anxiety shows up as not wanting to pay their bills or not filing their taxes or not negotiating for a raise. The first one, it might be a bit of discomfort, but the long-term consequences of not being invited to a party again are much lower than the long-term consequences of not getting a hold on your money. So my thought is that whether we tackle the tactical how-tos with money or the emotional side, they are interconnected. So if you experience any financial anxiety, getting mental health care treatment or getting specialized financial therapy treatment or getting help around money through a personal finance advisor or coach or some sort of curricula, that's going to help because I, I have a good hypothesis that there's also that bi-directional relationship between the two. Wow. I didn't realize it was such a, I actually, first of all, didn't realize it was 12 years old. I thought it was newer, but that is very new in the, in the field of research and, you know. So new. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In, in your book, you also talk about CBT, which for those of you who have seen a therapist, you may have heard of this. It's mm -hmm. cognitive behavioral therapy, mm -hmm. and you apply that specifically to finances. And I found it really helpful and an interesting uh, framework. Mm -hmm. And so can you talk about what CBT is for people who are not familiar with it and how they can apply it to financial anxiety specifically? Absolutely. So as you shared, cognitive behavioral therapy is a specific type of therapy that believes that your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions are all connected. And we call it the CBT triangle. So your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions are all on different sides of the triangle. 
And what we know is the way we think impacts the way we feel, the way we feel impacts the way we behave, and the way we behave impacts the way we think, right? So it becomes this cycle. So taking cognitive behavioral therapy as an approach and applying it to money gives us a bit more flexibility because most of the financial literacy space has focused on the behaviors around money. You need to, you know, coupon before you go to the grocery store. You need to shop around for car insurance. You need to do these specific behaviors. But if a person doesn't have the thoughts or the feelings to follow through on that behavior, they might not ever take action. So what CBT does is says, look, if behaviors feel too big for you, that's cool. We can try one of these other two entry ways. We can try working on the thoughts. So a financially anxious thought might be, if I file my own taxes, I will get audited by the IRS and get hauled away to prison, which we know statistically is really unlikely to happen. So we would say with that thought, we would lovingly go, how true is it? How true is it that if you file your own taxes, that you will not only get an audit, but that you'll be thrown in prison? And then we'll lovingly challenge that thought and be like, look, even if I file my taxes incorrectly, most likely the worst thing that's going to happen is I'll end up owing more money on taxes and I can create a payment plan to pay it back. Um, so we can take a look at the thought. Now on the other side of that cognitive behavioral therapy triangle is the feeling. So if I am feeling um, a sense of low self-esteem around money, then we can start to work on how can we increase that self-esteem around money? How, what are ways that we can start to improve the emotional side of our relationship with money? So what I love about CBT is that it is not if this one thing doesn't work, then you're doomed forever. It's like we have multiple different ways to try and solve for this problem. And if focusing on the behavior isn't where you're at right now, that's cool. There are other places to kind of enter into healing your relationship with money. Awesome. You also teach people to spend in line with their values. And I love the exercise that you talk about where you have people reframe their expenses to be in line with their values. And I think this is something that I have found when people are kind of going on this journey of examining their financial reality and starting to feel really guilty about expenses mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. really guilty or annoyed or angry, and they become really resentful. And then that's also not helpful. And so you had an exercise where you have people reframe to specifically align with their values. And one of them that you do is instead of medical bills, you reframe it with a functional knee. And I was like, oh, that's me. I had 10 <laughs> grand in, um, in a knee surgery bill. And I'm like, oh, that's a really nice reframe, right? I can walk yes. and ski and do the things I love. And I found that really, really helpful. So mm -hmm. can you talk more about the power of this practice? Because yeah. especially if someone's now finally starting to address student loans and debt, that's mm -hmm. a whole journey too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the exercise that you're talking about is reframing specific expenses, particularly ones that are pretty emotionally loaded, such as debt, into a more neutral or positive orientation. So for example, if you are paying a medical bill off little by little, instead of having that line item in your budget or your spending plan, say medical debt, you could reframe it to new healthy heart. Maybe a part of that was getting a stent in your heart and now your heart is able to pump blood as needed and help you to get the oxygen everywhere that you need. So you could reframe it to that. If you are paying back student loan debt, instead of calling it student loan debt, you could call it, I'm being a romantic here, but like meeting the love of my life debt because mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe you met the love of your life there. 
or maybe you were incredibly intellectually challenged and you could rename it like brain food or something like that. So you can rename your expense categories to feel a little less heavy. Whereas like for me, I don't mind the term emergency fund, but for some people, saving up specifically for an emergency causes some anxiety, almost like if I save for an emergency, then I'll have an emergency. Mm -hmm. So instead we call it something else. We call it a life happens fund, a rainy day fund, a safety net fund. You can rename these different accounts, both expenses and savings for things that feel better to you. For me, I have a ton of different savings accounts. That's the way my brain works best. And instead of it saying like savings account, one, two, three, four, five, six, it'll say uh, summer trip to Europe 2024, right? So I know that every month when I'm depositing money into that specific savings account, it's not just because, but it is with a specific goal in mind. I also have a dog, so I have a specific account for like, you know, my dog's needs. So if they have to go to the vet or if we have to like board her for some reason, there's a savings account for that. I love that. I think it's such a powerful way to really, especially for someone who's just trying to address that. I think that can be really, really helpful. I also want to know, you probably see so many interesting people and have learned so much about people and money. What's one of the biggest observations or learning items that you've had about people and money in your journey as a financial therapist? Well, this is why when you reached out, I was so struck by the work that you're doing with this podcast, because when we hear stories of other people, what it does is it provides a sense of validation that we are not alone in our experience. Even if Aaron, you and I have completely different stories, as you shared, there are elements of my story that you can resonate with, and there are elements of your story that I resonate with. So for me, one of the biggest things about doing this work is how powerful it can be simply to validate a person's experience. So in my practice, saying things like, you're not alone. Plenty of my clients struggle with this, or X percent of American adults have this problem. What it does is creates validation, helps people know that they're not alone, and also dials down shame. Shame is another big pain point that I have that comes up in my practice where people say, I feel embarrassed, I'm just not good at money, I'll never understand this. All of those are shame statements. So anytime we can validate the human experience when it comes to money, the more we can help dial down shame. And so that has been really powerful and affirming for the work that I do. Mm. Okay, so let's say someone is really struggling. They hear this podcast, they're like, oh, this is what I need, but they can't afford to work with someone like you, or maybe they're not ready. What is one simple action step you know, just general action step that you would encourage someone to take today that you think could make a difference based on your experience? Oh, it's, it's so hard to do one thing, right? So, so I'm, I'm cheating a little bit, but if you want to work with somebody like a financial therapist or a financial coach or counselor or enroll in some sort of financial curriculum, but you can't afford it, what I recommend if you're in the United States is a resource called 211. It's a phone number you can call or you can Google 211 plus the county that you live in. What it is, is it compiles all of the different resources in your area that are available to you. And there's an entire section specifically for money related stressors. So for me in the area that I live, the, there are a lot of credit unions and universities that will provide seminars on how to file your taxes, how to prepare to buy your first home, 
There are a lot of different education resources available there. And because they vary county by county, that is a great resource. If you need a little bit more handholding, if you've listened to the podcast and you've read some books and you know you wanna take a next step, they can provide those resources. And the other nice thing about 2-on-1 is it also has resources for things like food, shelter, mental health care. So it just essentially compiles all of the different community resources that you may have not even known existed in your backyard. I had no idea that even existed. I know. <laughs> I know a lot of people are like, wait, what? I'm like, yeah, it's it's fantastic because, you know, we can live in completely different states, but I can give you that same resource. And so you'll see some familiar names, right? You might see United Way in our counties, but you might not see United Way in somebody else's county. Right. So it's it's interesting. <laughs> Wait. So I have a question, though, with that yeah. resource. Is it specifically for financial challenges or is it kind of all resources available to all resources, okay. all resources or mental health, financial food, anything like that? Basically, any kind of social service. Amazing. OK, that's mm-hmm. a really great resource. Again, right. uh, that's new to me. I had no idea that that was um, right. there. Yes. Uh, anything else that you think is important for this audience or anything else that I didn't ask you that you think is relevant. Mm. Another really good question, Erin. So I guess what I would say for this audience is that money is a journey and that mistakes will happen along the way. I think so many of us beat ourselves up if we overdraft an account, an account, or if we forget to pay a bill, or if we didn't know, like to use your example, that we should have a certain amount of money kind of invested by a certain age. And one thing that I just want to extend to everybody is that financial mistakes happen and they'll continue to happen. I make money mistakes all the time. And rather than feeling like if you made a mistake, you're not allowed to move forward, I invite you just to understand that mistakes are a part of the the journey to be a little bit cheesy um, in your relationship with money. Amazing. Lindsay, thank you so much. I will put all of Lindsay's resources in the show notes so you can find her website, you can find her book. And you can find her on Instagram. So thank you so much for Thanks. taking a cold Instagram outreach and spending time with me today. Oh my gosh, I love it. And I really appreciated the cold Instagram outreach. Like, you know, two, three years ago, I feel like it was much more common to get messages in DMs. And that's how I loved connecting with people mm-hmm. and meeting new people. And then it seems like the last year there have just been a rise in bots on the platform. So it was nice to get a message that was not a bot and be like, oh, this sounds fantastic. I'm really interested in it. So thanks for like reminding me that there are other humans on the other side of the screen. So thanks. (laughs) Totally. And thanks for responding back to you. And it I think that is the beautiful thing with technology and and Mm -hmm. Instagram and social media. And then there's, Mm -hmm. you know, a reminder. I mean, we would not have connected if it wasn't that. So right. I think that's a beautiful thing. Thank Mm -hmm. you so much, Lindsay. Thanks, Erin. Thanks. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that episode. I know I learned so much from Lindsay. You can check out all the details on Lindsay's book and where to follow her in the show notes. And I also did want to mention, for those of you who are small business employers, we have a really amazing solution that really addresses this topic of mental health. And it's Cunity Benefits, which we're really excited to now be offering Ally Health. And so... Uh, Ally Health really provides a super affordable and accessible access to mental health care for your team, and it's at a super preferred price, so you should definitely check it out. If you're curious, you can email allyhealth at cunityinc.com for more details, and you can also read about that in the show notes. So kind of a no-brainer, so I would definitely encourage you to check it out if you're interested in, in helping support your team with mental health care access. So 
With that, thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. 